0: I want to speak to you today on the perplexity and the affliction of Job. And apart from our Lord Jesus Christ, there are very few people uh, in the world who have suffered as much as Job did, and they suffered the pain and humiliation and, and sufferings like Job did in the Old Testament. What he went through is something that that I do not wish for any human being. He lost everything he loved, cherished, and honor and own in one fell scoop, and he lost all his children, that is his future. He lost all his wealth, he lost his wealth, his health, he lost all his friends, and he lost his dignity. And the story of Job is a story that is replayed in every generation. every generation, God is drawn to the most righteous person on this planet and so is the devil. And this battle between God and Satan is fought over every single generation. And the contested issue is always an issue of integrity and righteousness. Will the righteous still love God even when the hand of blessing is removed? Will the righteous still praise him in the midst of the fiery trial? And the book of Job begins with an amazing description of Job. A Job was the most righteous man in his generation. And the Bible says there was no one like him and on the earth. And this is how scriptures describe him. He was blameless and righteous and upright, one who feared God and shunned evil. The King James Bible says escheweth evil. I love that. Together with Noah and Daniel, They were singled out as the three most righteous men who ever lived in the Bible. This is important because their righteousness did not immune them from being tested. In fact, it was the outstanding righteousness that got them in a hot soup in the first place. In other words, the godly will face tests and trials. Why? To prove to Satan that they love God more than their own lives. Amen. Now Noah, of course, had to endure... The ridicule of humanity for 120 years as he patiently built the ark. They weren't laughing at him when the rain started falling. Daniel, that righteous prophet, was unjustly thrown into a lion's den for his righteousness and outstanding devotion to God. But Job went through the greatest suffering of all. My question that I wanna ask you today is can you find the God of mercy in the book of Job? The short, short answer is yes. God could have just left Job alone in his smallness. If you think about it, that all that Job was, he was a very righteous man who was extremely wealthy, but he had a bickering wife and 10 pretty wayward children that loved to party. And he was in the safety of a protective bubble and God hedged him around in comfort and posterity, posterity. And he was the wealthiest man in the East. And if God did not interfere, If God did not intervene and interrupt Job's comfortable life, you and I would have never heard of him. He would have just been a rich man who lived and faded into obscurity and no one would be the wiser. But God loved Job too much to leave him in his smallness. So he intervened, and because he did, we all know Job today as one of the most outstanding, upright and righteous men in the entire Bible. A man who did not sin, even when everything was yanked under his feet. Now I tell you this, God loves you too much my friends. He loves you too much to leave you into your smallness. He loves you too much to leave you in your foolishness and he will come and he will interrupt and he will disrupt your life because he has a greater plan for your life. And don't you ever complain when he does that because he will not leave you in your smallness. Can you find God in the book of, the God of mercy in the book of Job? You bet you can, hallelujah. Psalms 11 and verse five tells us that the Lord tests the righteous, puts the righteous through the fire. If you're righteous, boy, he will test you. But the wicked, he leaves alone. And the last thing you want is for God to leave you alone because whatever you do, my friends, Whatever you do, pray that God will never leave you alone in your smallness, in your foolishness. Two statements for you to ponder over. If you have suffered much and you have not seen much success, then oftentimes the suffering is for others or it is for the future. Think about this for a few moments. Second statement, if you have enjoyed much success without suffering and without sacrifice, then it could be that someone had suffered on your behalf. This whole idea of vicarious suffering is an important concept in the Scriptures. Paul says that I'm suffering right now to fill up the sufferings in the body of Christ. What does that mean? I tell you there's something about there are people that are called into the ministry of suffering for the body of Christ. There are people that are called into this lifestyle. Uh, They pay the price for the rest of the body. Now God is drawn to the righteous and so is the devil. But the devil is not just drawn to the righteous, he's also drawn to those that God is gonna use. Satan knew Simon Peter was the chosen vessel to lead the early church, so he sought to sift him. The good thing he had to ask permission from the Lord Jesus, which simply means if the devil is onto you, he's gotta get past Jesus. Come on. Here's what I think the test was. Satan probably said to Jesus, Simon's a reed. He will capitulate. He will deny you. He's not the man you think he is, Jesus. You just let me at him. You just let me at him and I'll show you what kind of a man he really is. He will curse you in your face. Just let me at him to see if he still loves you and follows you. And Jesus permitted Satan to sift Simon, knowing that Simon would deny him and betray him. He prayed, but he prayed for Simon that the whole experience would make him even stronger. And Peter emerged from that whole episode stronger and became the leader of the apostolic band. I'll tell you this, Jesus is praying for us, amen. Let's not be naive about this. I'm standing here in your presence only because Jesus is praying for me, hallelujah. And I'll make it true because he's praying for me. The same with David. Satan knew that David was going to inherit the throne. He comes with David with all he's got, takes away his family, takes away everything that David owned, but not just David, all of the things that David's men owned as well, their families. This was Ziglag. This was the greatest and darkest, I think, moment in David's life. And he's going through this terrible trial. The Bible says that they wept so hard that they had no more tears left, left to weep. And here is David, what do you do? When you've lost everything, what do you do when everything has been taken and yanked from under your feet? The Bible tells us that David encouraged himself in the Lord, hallelujah. The word encourage means to pour courage into you. But sometimes you don't have people around you to pour courage. You don't have people around to encourage you. In those times, you have gotta learn how to encourage yourself in the Lord. Woo! I'm preaching so much better than you responding, come on. And there's, there are times where you've got to learn how to encourage yourself. You've got to learn how to pray in the Spirit. You've got to learn to go for walks and say, God, I will praise you. I will give thanks to you. But more than that, the Bible says, He, he put on a linen ephod, which is a prayer ministry. Hallelujah. He got into prayer, sought the Lord. He said, Lord, what do I do? Should I pursue them? Will you give me victory? Hallelujah. And ladies and gentlemen, God put and pulled David out of that fiery furnace and the next thing we know, he's sitting on the throne of Judah. Hallelujah. It, that These trials and these testings are just a shortcut to the throne and to the, the promises that God has given to you uh, for many years. And, and now it's bec- becoming eventualized. Hallelujah. Actualized. Hallelujah. The whole story of Job begins with God out to pick a fight. He says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job I want you to look at uh, Satan's response. Interesting that the Bible and the Job opens up with the sons of God presenting themselves to God. How Satan slipped into that whole gathering, I have no idea. I think he disguised himself as an angel of light. No one could pick him up. But the Lord said, what are you doing here, Satan? And he says, well, you know, I've been walking to and fro. He's a very restless creature. And then the Lord says, have you considered my servant Job? He's outstanding. His righteousness is outstanding. And Satan mocks the Most High with disdain and says, of course he worships you. Of course he fears you. You blessed him beyond his wildest imaginations. You put him in a protective bubble. Of course he will fear you. But remove that protection. Let me have him. Let me see it. Let me take away all that he has. And let's see whether... He's going to praise you. I bet you he will curse you to your face. That was the challenge that the devil posed to God. The test would, God would, Job, now curse God. And all the, to see that all the blessings and favor had been yanked from under his feet. And this is where I think many believers are today. Every country in your life that has been promised to you is now (laughs) happening. There's so much contradiction. Your prayers have gone unanswered that you prayed for provision, but you are in a position of being broke, bankrupt. Some of you have asked for healing for a long time, only to find that your sickness or disease has deteriorated. You prayed for your children, but they seem to fall into greater depravity. And what makes this all so deeply painful is that it's all happening at a time when you're trying to serve God the best you can. And there's so much prayer being lifted up. This is called perplexity. And perplexity is a state of confusion. It's a state of uncertainty, but it's also a state of transition. It simply means you're moving from one place to another place. One of the biggest problems in spiritual warfare, I think often is we do not know where the source of the problem is. And because we're unsure, like the Apostle Paul, we say, who said we're fighting with beating the air as one fighting, not sure where the problem is. We don't know where the problem is from God, or whether the problem is from the devil, or whether the problem is our flesh. and Because we're unsure, we sometimes respond wrongly. So the big question to ask is, is it the devil? Is it God or is it man? Because if I know the source of the attack, then I know how to respond. If God is the one who's initiated the trial, then the Bible says, submit to God, amen. I know what to do. If the trial is from the devil, I also know what to do. The Bible says, resist him and he shall flee from from you. But if the trial is from man, I also know how to respond. But if it's from all the three of them, then what do I do? It's called perplexity, amen. So wisdom and understanding is really needed to help you discern which is which. And as uh, it was with Job, God is waiting for one kind of response. And that was to praise Him and maintain our integrity in spite of all the trouble that was swirling around our lives. It's almost as if He staked His reputation on us. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I want you to make an internal decision right now, right here today. An internal decision that our default behavior when we hit turbulence is praise and thanksgiving. Come on. Even if I don't understand, I know that I know that all things will work together for good for those that love Him. Not only to prove the devil wrong, but to fill the celestial space with praise for God. Hallelujah. James 1 and verse 2 to 4. My brothers, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, or in some translations, endurance. Let patience have its perfect work. Watch this, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. How do we react as believers when we fall into contradiction? Is the test! That's the test! How you respond. And our default behavior, according to James, is Count it all joy, hallelujah. In other words, the moment you hit turbulence, rejoice. Why? Because the the trial is going to do for you what all the money in this world cannot. Count it, reckon, all joy. Why? Because the testing of your faith produces endurance. Now the word count is borrowed from the accounting profession, by the way. And it literally means to make a mental note to reckon on a ledger. This verse has nothing to do with our feelings. It has everything to do with how we think, how we process, and how we respond. The one who counts is not concerned about changing his external circumstances. He's interested in changing his attitude and how he responds in the face of those circumstances. Oftentimes, God doesn't change our situations. Have you noticed that? He doesn't change our situations. Why? Because He's seeking to change us which simply means you've got to process this differently, the trials that come along our way. When contradictions come, what God is seeking to do is seeking to develop something in you that is eternal and it can only be produced under great duress, under great pressure. They're helping you build a reserve for the last days. And boy, do we need that, man. So what is it that we need to know? That when trouble strikes, regardless of what it is, We need to see it as a thing of joy. Philip's translation says, my friends, when trouble enters your life, do not resist it as an enemy, but welcome it as a friend. Now, watch this please. This is really important. In our minds, there are a few ledger columns, okay? When trouble hits our lives, there are a few ways that we can respond to this. For instance, in some of your lives, there's a column called blame, blame. And the moment you trouble, hits you, immediately you go to the blame column and you start blaming other people. It's the Adam syndrome. When Adam was found out that he, you know, he sinned against God, he said to God, it is not me, it is my wife. Hallelujah. It is my wife, she's the one, you gave her to me, she's the source of the problem. Blame. Then there's another column called anger. Some people in this church respond with anger. Every time they they hit turbulence, that behavior, that default behavior is to get angry and and, and take it out on somebody else. There's another column called self-pity. When trouble comes, some people throw a pity party. The only person they invite is themselves. They feel sorry for themselves. They begin to isolate themselves from the other people. What about bitterness? Are are you going to feel bitter? Christian counselors will tell you that the number one root problem in most people when they come for counseling is bitterness. But whatever columns you have in your mind, there is one column that is called joy. And what James is saying is that the moment your life hits turbulence, the moment something goes haywire in your life, you gotta go to the column that says joy and says, this is where I'm gonna live, hallelujah. This joy column, that's why Paul says rejoice in the Lord And again, I say to you, if you did not hear it the first time, rejoice, hallelujah, always. You may not feel joy, but this has nothing to do with your feelings. It's everything to do with your thinking, because the moment you start thinking right, the feelings will follow you. You know, a lot of people think, if I had more time, I can change. That's fallacy. That's a fallacy. You change the moment your thinking changes. If you have a poverty mentality, you will always be poor and always be in debt. You gotta change the way you think, amen. God has to break you out from your smallness. And the moment your thinking is aligned with Scripture, everything in your life starts being aligned with Scripture as well, amen. Now the next thing is that the word knowing. Knowing comes from the assurance that if I, if you respond in joy, there will be fruit to our actions and God will set into motion His grace. It's like a doctor that says to you, you need surgery. It's very unlikely that you're gonna feel this warm glow in your heart and jump for joy. The moment he says surgery, you know there's gonna be inconvenience, discomfort and pain, but you also know that if you voluntarily put yourself in the process, it will have a good result. And this knowing helps you to endure the pain, hallelujah. Now, you can count it all joy because here, we're not talking about a doctor. We're talking about the Almighty God, your Heavenly Father. You are in good hands when you say, God, I trust you, amen? Trust the process, my friends. Let endurance have its perfect work, amen? You put yourself on the operating table, the, the surgeon puts on his gloves, and the moment you see that, you jump off and run away. Listen, it's very hard to operate you when you're running. You gotta trust the process, amen? You're in good hands. You gotta let endurance take its, take its course. Don't rush. There are many treasures you have to acquire. My spiritual father, Brother Bailey, always told me, he said, when you're going through a trial, take your time. Other other preachers will say, the moment you're walking through hell, speed up the pace. But my, you know, Brother Bailey sees things very different. He said, take your time. He said, because there are things that you can acquire when you're going through the trials of life that you can never acquire anywhere else. There are treasures of darkness. In heaven, there is no sorrow. In heaven, all our tears will be wiped away. In heaven, there are things you will never experience that you will experience here. Take your time, don't rush, amen. Now Job suffered about six months before God delivered him from his adversity. And if you will endure the process, he will bring you out of the trial and he will perfect his work in your life, which simply means Romans eight twenty eight is not just a single picture frame it's a moving, movie, it's a movie, amen. In other words, where you are right now, when you're in this trial, that's not the end of the matter. You've got to see the end of the movie, amen. And the end of the movie is Jesus wins, hallelujah, amen. There's triumph, there's victory. What is the greatest test in a test? I think it's the lack of perspective. When Job was going through a trial, he lost all the ability to be objective, lost his perspective because the fire was so hot. Think about Joseph for a few moments. Every time he did the right thing, he was, prom- he was rewarded with a promotion, and the promotion was prison, all right? Uh, 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 an affliction, and he doesn't understand this. So he's in prison because he stood in his integrity with regards to Potiphar's household. But the Bible tells us two things about Joseph when he was in prison. It says in Psalms 115 and verse 22 that when Joseph came out of prison, He came out with a wisdom that far surpassed his elders. Oh my friends, never waste a good prison experience. There's something about a prison experience that when you come out of it, God gives you a wisdom. People are going to look at you and say, they're going to say something has happened to that man because that prison experience forms the nature of Christ in us. But the second thing is that if you will yield to the experience, Psalms 105 and verse 22 says, Joseph bound the princess at his pleasure. What does that mean? It means that he gained a position of authority as he came out of that prison. Listen, my friends. Every time you come out of a prison experience, whatever that experience is, you gain a position of authority. If you come out from a financial prison, and God has delivered you, then you have the authority to help people come out from a financial prison. Hallelujah. If you came out from a long-standing sickness and God healed you, it gives you the authority to pray for people and to li- deliver people who have been in long-standing sicknesses as well. The prison experience gives you an authority. Come on. I told you the story many years ago, 15, 20 years ago. I can't remember, but I had, you know, every month, these migraines, terrible migraines. And you know the story, I, I was in a, I could feel these migraines coming one day. I was having lunch with a pastor right in a Chinese restaurant in downtown. And, and uh, I could feel this terrible migraine. And you know, those of you who had migraines, you know, the whole day is ruined. And I could feel this migraine coming. And I said to my friend, I, I don't think this is going to be a good lunch. This, uh, this terrible migraine is coming. He said, Pastor Young, God has given me an authority over migraines. Not over other sicknesses. I don't know why. But when I pray for people who have migraines, they seem to get healed. He says, can I pray for you? I said, yes. And he stood on his feet. And he said, Shandabara our at the top of his voice. And he started praying. And I was so embarrassed because the whole restaurant was looking at us. And I slid down my chair, oh God. And I felt this embarrassment. And the Lord says, do you want to be embarrassed or do you want to be healed? I said, Lord, I want to be healed. He laid hands on me. I received that healing. 20 years later, I've not had a single migraine. God's my witness. Not a single migraine, hallelujah. He had gained a position of healing over this uh, this sickness. You know, I, 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 my mom's here. I think she's standing, she's, she's right there. You know, several years ago, we were in the home. We were talking. I was looking at her. She was standing at the dining room one moment, and the next moment, I looked and she's not there. I turned around. And she she was on the floor, and I we rushed her to, to her, and she was she collapsed. She was barely breathing, barely breathing. I don't think she remembers the events of the day. And I put my finger on her pulse, and she there was no pulse on the finger. There was no pulse. And I started. We start. I stood there, and I remember we held. I held her head, and I said, "God, please." don't do this Lord, save my mom, bring her back. And I tell you that at one moment, that was one moment in time, that I could feel this tremendous faith that was released. It was supernatural. And I could go into the realms of the supernatural and literally, I tell you this, I held her in the spirit and pulled her out of that death experience. And my mom should not be here today. She is here today because of God's mercy and God's grace. But I tell you, that was this moment of faith that I reached in. I never felt this before, this supernatural endowment of the gift of faith. And that's what we need in the church today, amen. God puts up prison, gives you a prison sentence, it's for you to and, and, and say, God, I embrace this experience. Because when you come out of that experience, God is going to give you a gain position of authority. Hallelujah. Caleb spent 40 years in the wilderness. 38 years because of the failure of 10 spies who had no faith in God. And the result of that day, the whole of the children of Israel had to spend another 38 years altogether 40 years in the wilderness at the end of 40 years they could get get into the promised land and they're dividing the land Joshua is dividing the inheritance everybody gets a field and a house a field and a house a field and a house but when you when they came to Caleb he says i, I don't i can't do a field and a house man he says i want a mountain I want a whole mountain. And if you've spent 40 years in the wilderness, only he and Joshua spent 40 years in the world, The rest of the generation had passed away. This is a new generation. If you had spent 40 years in a prison, I tell you this, you will never be satisfied with a field and a house. Come on. Some of you here, young people today, oh God, if only you give me that BTO flat, I'll be happy for the rest of my life. Don't be contented with these things, my friends. Don't be contented with a HDB flat. Don't be contented with a, listen, God has got more for you. Don't, don't, don't allow your small thinking to rob you of eternal greatness, hallelujah. God has a dream, God has a plan for you, amen. Amen. But sometimes you gotta go into the wilderness, sometimes you gotta do the prison sentence because it's in that prison that God forms you, His nature in you. And when you come out of the prison, you will never be happy with a field and a house. I can never live like this. I said, listen, I, I did not choose this life. This life chose me. The Lord called me and the Lord chose this life for me. And I do not regret one moment, the life he has chosen for me. And after all these years, I will never, 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 never be satisfied in just going back to the same old, same old. I want more in God. And you got to have this passion to move forward with God. Amen. And sometimes the only way for you to move in this direction is for God to take you in your comfort and convenience and bring you through the wilderness and put you in the prison experience. Because that's the only way that He can change you. When you're in a trial, the first question you often ask is, what did I do wrong? Psalm 77 verse 6, the psalmist says, my spirit makes diligent search when you're in a fiery trial. You make diligent search. You want to know where you are in the trial, why you are in the trial. You want to know how you got there. Was it sin? Am I being tested? How did I get out? James 7 and 4 and verse 7 says, submit to God, resist the devil and he shall flee from you. Much of God's dealing is to bring us to a place of yielding, yielding. Will you yield to the will of God in the trial And if you can truly submit to Him, it gains you a position of authority. Amen. I tell you this, that the Lord doesn't allow you to go through any suffering that He has not first gone through. He will not allow any sickness upon you that He first did not Himself bear on the cross. Everything that you're going through, He understands. He's been there. He's done that. He's been with you. So you can trust Him. Amen. You can trust your Heavenly Father. In the parable of the wheat and tears, the Lord did not permit anyone to pull out the tears because in doing so, they might accidentally harm the wheat. And the Lord loves the wheat too much. He loves you too much to allow human beings to interfere in His program. He alone will put you through the test and He alone will deliver you. Amen. In the midst of all this trial, Job has lost his family. He's lost all that he has. Everything that he has has been taken away from him. You know the one thing that was not taken away from him? His wife. Bickering wife. Who said to him, why don't you just curse God and die and forget about everything else? I guess she was in so much pain herself. She cursed him. I was just at the Empowered 21 conference two days ago, heard Rick Warren speak. In one of the workshops, he was talking about how he lost his son. 27 years old, committed suicide. I, I, the pain that a parent goes through, I cannot imagine, even come to imagine. We were all at the point of breaking down in tears and what a, what a powerful, powerful testimony. And you know, I, I realized that when somebody's going through suffering, terrible suffering, The best thing is for you to, if you want to comfort them, is to don't say anything. I think there's nothing that you can say to help somebody in a situation, but sometimes you just got to be there. Just got to be there for them. Job had three friends like that. They came to him, and when they saw the the boils all over his body, the Bible says they wept seven days. They cried. They threw ashes on their head. They rent their clothes, they couldn't believe. This is Job, they couldn't even recognize him. He's the greatest man in the East, now he's reduced to just skin and bones. And everything, they just stood with him for seven days and they wept with Job and Job was in great anguish and distress and all was going well until they opened their mouths. And those mentors became tormentors, hallelujah. And by the time that finished, they had condemned Job They said, Job, this is all your fault. If you are in this trial, it's because God has put you here because he's dealing with your sin, you're a sinner. You're not a righteous man. God will not deal with a righteous man like this. You've been sinning. What secret sin have you got in your life? God's dealing with you. Have you met people like that before? And Job was angry by the time his comforters were done with him, and instead of comforting him, they provoked him to anger. My friends, what does God want in our afflictions? It's submission. Submission, yield, yield to Him. Amen. Take heed that in our afflictions that we don't turn to iniquity. I don't know what you've gone through over the last six months, one year. Maybe it could be a debilitating disease, sickness, whatever it might be. It could be a financial loss, could be family problems, could be a relational issue. I don't care. Whatever you've gone through, listen, my friends, whatever you're going through right now, if you will learn to change your disposition and say, God, I will start praising you. I will start giving you the glory. I will start learning how to, to, be, uh, to, to count it all joy. Something is going to shift in you. Something is going to change. And God is going to bring you out of that prison. Stand with me, please. Hallelujah. I remember the first time I learned this lesson. I was in university. I came back home. I was miserable. I was miserable with myself my progress with God, kept stumbling into sin. And I I said, Lord, I'm just so tired of this. I was sitting in the kitchen. I remember so clearly many, many, many years ago, and the, the Holy Spirit just said this to me. He said, why don't you praise me? Why don't you just praise God? And I heard the voice of the Holy Spirit, feeling dejected, feeling discouraged. I remember getting down on my knees, I lifted my hands, and I tell you the moment I said, I praise you, all all of heaven opened up, the glory just came down, I felt the presence of God, the the pain lifted up, the whatever sense of dejection lifted up, and I felt this explosion of joy and God just removed in in, an instant, delivered me from that whole problem. In the name of Jesus, this can happen to you this morning, hallelujah. Just praise Him, hallelujah. David was fleeing his Jerusalem from his son Absalom, who was out to kill him. This probably would be David's darkest hour. He's passing through a town heading toward the Jordan when a man called Shimei came out and cursed David to his face. He said, you're a dog. I curse you, David. I curse you, David. One of the generals beside David said, David, just give me the word. I'll cut off the man's head. And David said, no, no, just leave that man alone. It's okay. Let him curse me. It would be that if God would see my affliction this day, that he would have compassion on me and deliver me from this. But let him curse me. It's all right. David understood something that was God is in control of the situation. God was looking at David. How are you going to respond to this, David? How are you going to respond to this? David responded in zigzag by praising the Lord, hallelujah. He put on that linen earphone and that's what we need to do today. You must make a decision, ladies and gentlemen, right here, right now, that from today onwards, your default behavior, when you hit turbulence, is I'm going to praise the Lord. That's going to be your default behavior. Cornerstone, I'm going to ask the Lord to do this, remind you again and again, that this is going to be your default behavior. No more complaining, no more murmuring, We give God praise and thanks. No more saying, God, why me? Why me, Lord? Why do you do this to my family? you got to learn to stop saying that and say, God, I praise you. you, My life is in your hands. My times are in your hands. And I'll praise you. Why don't you lift your hands right now, everybody? Just lift your hands and start praising God right now. Just, Just bless the Lord and just praise the Lord. You've just listened to a production of Cornerstone Community Church.